I was thinking about it today, or actually not today, the other day, and I was getting so excited because the end is near. Amen? The end of going through the Old Testament here in Calvary Chapel, Rochester. (laughs) Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Obadiah. Who is Obadiah? You know, who, what, when, where, why? Usually when I'm doing a study, that's kind of the first questions I ask and try to try to dig in there. So who wrote the book? Well, the book of Obadiah is obviously the, the author. What's interesting is that Obadiah is a very common name in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, there's 13 different Obadiahs mentioned in the Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, none of the 12 others are identified as the writer of this book. Uh, as far as we can tell, anyways. Um, so there's really not a whole lot known about who this Obadiah was. We don't know his hometown. You know, sometimes we're told by the prophets, you know, where they where they were from or anything like that. We don't know that. Uh, we don't know about his family or his genealogy. In other words, we don't know if he descended from a line of priests or prophets or anything like that. We don't know anything about that. Um, and so he's kind of an obscure guy, basically. Well, what is this book about? Well, it's also, interestingly enough, it's the shortest Old Testament book. Um, It's one of what they call the minor prophets, and it's not because their prophecies were minor, but just because the length of the books, and this one is the shortest one of them. And it is a prophecy of judgment against the nation of Edom. Now, Edom uh, descended, the Edomites descended from Esau, who happened to be Jacob's twin brother. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, so when was it written? Again, there's so much we don't know. We don't know exactly when it was written. There's a couple other couple theories. I think, personally, my opinion, um, most likely it was written between 586 and 539 B.C. And that was uh, probably, probably sometime after the Babylon, Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah quotes... Some of the uh, some of uh, the book of Obadiah and his prophecies, and so he was a prophet. You know, he was there at the the uh, destruction of Jerusalem there, uh, and so it's quite possible that Obadiah was a contemporary with him, or maybe shortly before him. Who knows? Um, and then where was it written? You know, some of the prophets were prophets to Judah, and some were prophets to Israel. We're not really sure. It seems like he was a prophet to Judah, but again, it's kind of obscure. Um, and so then why was it written? Again, it's a judgment against Edom. And, and here we're also told the reasons why God is judging the nation of Edom. Now, if you take this, this book, there's uh, 21 verses. Um, you can break it up. Um, I broke it up this way. Verses 1 through 9 is the report of God's judgment of Edom. Uh, verses 10 through 14 are the reasons for God's judgment. And then verses 15 through 18 are the results of God's judgment. And there's a little bit of an overlap here because verses 17, so I said 15 to 18, verse 17 to 21 really speaks about the restoration of Israel as well. And then finally, uh, there's just the, the, the rest of the story. And uh, we'll get to that a little bit later, more on why this book was written. So the very first part is the report of God's judgment, beginning there in verse 1. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. 
that report is basically the message that Obadiah uh, received from the Lord um, to pronounce against Edom. And in Obadiah's vision, he hears that God has sent a messenger among the nations to stir them up, basically, to rise up against Edom. That's kind of a common theme in some of the different prophecies. It's similar in language and idea to, like, for example, Joel. We were in Joel not too long ago. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So so God is stirring up in the hearts of these nations to come uh, in, in fulfillment of the prophecy of the, va- of the uh, battle of Armageddon there in Joel chapter 3. It's also uh, similar in language to one of the prophecies in Revelation 19, where John says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So there's these different examples where God is, is stirring up. Now, he's, this is a prophecy to the birds, but it's a stirring up of nations to come down and to really be God's instrument of judgment against different peoples. And in this case, God is stirring up the nations as his instrument of judgment against Edom. Verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell uh, in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. So what was their problem? Well, the root issue was pride of heart. And their pride deceived them. Now, Edom, the nation, they controlled the chief trade routes between Asia and Egypt. They had a very lucrative, where they were located, it was just a, it was a, a great place to, just to do business. And everybody had to pass through their land, basically, on this trade route. So they became very prosperous in that. One of the main cities of Edom was the rock city of Petra. And if you know, if you've ever watched like... Uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the temple was it the Temple of Doom or the Last Crusade? I think whenever one of the he goes rides into this place where he sees this great big tre- the treasury of of Petra. Anyways, that's the city we're talking about. I got this from a website about the city of Petra. It says this: Who inhabited Petra, that ancient city? It is believed that the earliest inhabitants of this mysterious area were the Horites. Genesis 14, verse 6. Evidence indicates that Petra's first occupants were cave dwellers. Esau, the brother of Jacob, settled in the area south of the Dead Sea. His descendants, the Edomites, eventually replaced the Horites, 
Genesis 36. The mountains of Edom still abound with caves, temples, and houses cut in the side of the mountains surrounding Petra. The Edomites built almost, in all, built almost impregnable fortresses in the canyons and gorges of these mountains. The magnificent ruins at Petra attest to the greatness which Edom once knew. When the Israelites came from Egypt during the Exodus, about 1445 B.C., the Edomites still occupied this region. So back in Ob- Ob- uh, Obama's, back in Ob- Obadiah's time, <laughs> I got to be careful there. Back in Obadiah's time, there was only one route into this uh, city, this rock city of Petra, and it was very narrow. In fact, in one place it was like twelve feet. They're just they're just twelve feet. Is that's how narrow the passageway to get into this area? And uh, there's cliffs surrounding it, like two hundred up to from two hundred about a thousand feet high, and the Edomites. You know, they had like a million people in this city, and and if an army were to go in, they'd have to go through this this passageway to get in there. And so basically, they just stood up on top of the mountains, and they see armies coming in, they just drop boulders on them and kill them. So it, it, they had a great defense, and they were so they had all those places to hide out and defend themselves from. So they took pride in being militarily strong, invincible. No one could you know no one could get through to to conquer them. And notice here that it's God says he's the one who's going to humble them in judgment. He says, I will make you small among the nations. Even though you go up and you ascend in these cliffs, I'm going to bring you down. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it says this, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. All these things that the Lord hates. You know, he, he hates murder. He hates, uh, uh, you know, people that, that, that lie and people that cause discord. But the top of the list that, the God, that God hates is human pride. That's the top thing that he hates. Peter in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, he's speaking to believers because, you know, just because you're born again, you have a relationship with Jesus, doesn't mean that all of a sudden your pride's gone. We still battle with human pride. Each one of us do. And so within the church, pride can be an issue. And so Peter wrote this, Likewise, you younger people. You know, because younger people, I remember when I was younger, I thought older people just, you know, they were just out of touch with things. They just didn't know, you know, they didn't know how things were new and, you know, they didn't understand this newer generation. And uh, I think every generation deals with that. But um, Peter wrote this, likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. And then he's not just addressing the younger people. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Man, you just put on humility wherever you're at in every situation. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You know, that's an area we all struggle with, right? Exalting ourselves. Trying to, trying to you know, we're worried that we're not going to get recognized or that, you know, nobody's going to defend myself. I've got to do it. And so we try to exalt ourselves and God says, don't do that. Humble yourselves. I'll exalt you in the proper time. Well, let's look at the totality of their destruction here. Verse 5. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? 
If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. So the, the picture here, thieves, you know, burglars, they're sneaking in at night. Uh, they break into a home. They're only going to take as much as they can carry without getting caught. You know, they're just going to grab as much as they can and, and, and get out of there so they're not discovered. Grape harvesters, people who are gathering grapes, they can't possibly pick every last piece of fruit from the vine. From the vine. Some is going to be left over, either purposely you know, God told the children of Israel when they, were, when they were harvesting their land to purposely leave some behind so that the poor could glean, so the poor could, could come in after them and, 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 and be fed, basically. Uh, so either, either leaving grapes on the vine purposely or accidentally. You know, you're walking by there and, and maybe it's, there's a clump of grapes hidden under a leaf and you just missed it, you know. So it's impossible to get all the fruit. But God declares that Edom's plunderers they're going to search out, and they're going to take every last bit. And notice it, it's of Esau's treasures. Esau was the forefather of the entire race of the Edomites. And so it's almost a picture of, you know, even if maybe they have heirlooms. You know, my, my great, 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 great grandfather, he gave, passed this down through the family. And this is this heirloom. God says, even those things are going to be taken. Nothing's going to be spared in this destruction you know, we can become prideful in our possessions. You know, I, I've worked for what I have, and, and, or, you know, I deserve what I have. Uh, and our possessions sometimes give us a sense of self-worth. We, we feel worthless unless we have, look what, look what I've accomplished, you know. And that's another form of pride. Obadiah, uh, verse 7. It continues, it says, All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. So not only would their uh, treasures be completely plundered, but even their friends and their allies, people that they trusted in, would commit acts of treachery against them. In other words, there'd be no one that they could turn to for help. God's going to just so utterly destroy them and judge them. Verse 8, Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? So even the wise men among them would not be spared. Their wisdom would be revealed as foolishness. You know, in other words, the wise people wouldn't be able to figure out a way out of this predicament. You know, I've got a plan. Let's do that. You know, there'd be nothing that they could do in this judgment that God was bringing upon them. Verse 9, Then your mighty men, O T-men, shall be dismayed, to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Now, T-men... Uh, was a grandson of Esau, and possibly his descendants, maybe they had a reputation for bravery or, or you know, military might or whatever. They were very powerful. Well, God is saying the powerful among them would be dismayed and cut off. They would be unable to defend themselves with their strength. So you see their wisdom. They can't rely on their wisdom. They can't rely on their friends. They can't rely on their possessions. They can't rely on their power. God is going to strip them from all of this. There's nothing that they could take pride in. So often, human pride causes us to lean on our own resources to protect us, right? We've got this, we've got this, this, this nest egg that we can, we can, you know, if hard times hit, man, we've got this. So we can, we can rely on that. Well, not necessarily, 
you know, sometimes we trust other people to meet our needs rather than going to the Lord. It's, you know, we'd rather just go to someone else and get advice or whatever rather than coming to the Lord. Or sometimes we rely on our own intellect. You know, I, I, I'm pretty smart. I'll figure out a way how to get through this. Or, or maybe we try to try, trust in our own strength or our power to protect us. And God, these people were so full of pride. God says, I'm going to strip. There's nothing that you can rely on. Nothing. Complete humility. I think that's why this proverb is so important for you and I to remember. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So that is the report of God's judgment. What's the reason for God's judgment? Verse 10. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Now right away when you think of violence, I think of striking someone, you know, causing physical harm, and that is definitely what violence means. But it's not just physical violence but it also this word also means just doing wrong to someone else and it implies doing something wrong cruelly being cruel or causing damage or injustice to someone well how did the how did they the edomites do violence or how did esau do violence to his brother jacob verse 11 we're told in the day that you stood on the other side in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Now this is most likely referring to the Babylonian invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. I, and, and I say that most likely. The reason why is because we're not really told. You can't read in the Bible that, oh, the Edomites did this at this time, and it's not recorded historically that you can read. And you know what? That kind of encourages me in one sense. This is the deal. You know, sometimes things happen to us, and it seems like it escapes notice, right? Somebody does something harmful to us or hurts us or something. You know, it seems like they're getting away with it. And maybe the, the Israelites felt that way too, man. It's, you know, nobody's paying attention to this harm that's causing, and yet God remembers. And that should encourage you when you're going through something and maybe, maybe you're the only one that you know, is aware of what's happening. Well, God's aware of what's happening, and God's going to hold them accountable. God sees all their actions, and he's going to hold them to account for that. Well, when the Babylonians evidently were invading the land and carrying off the children of Israel, some of the Edomites, they just stood observing. They didn't do anything to help out. And here it says their inaction made them guilty as though they were actually the ones doing the plundering themselves. You see, pride can cause us to stand aloof from others experiencing hardship. We kind of just distance ourselves. That's, that's another way that pride manifests itself in our relationships. And sometimes inaction is just as bad as doing it yourself because you're not stepping in to, to, to help out in situations. I know, you know, my family in, in Holland, they, they, they literally had to encounter this, you know, when the Nazis were taking the Jews and hauling them off to concentration camps. They could have either just sat by and said, well, feel bad for them, but, you know, I don't know what to do. Well, some of my relatives, my, my mom's side, they actually took Jews and they hit them and, uh, you know, risking their lives doing it, basically. 
And uh, so, you know, there are times when we have to actually take a stand and we have to actually do something where inaction is just as bad as as not doing anything, or as, as though you were doing something. And so that's what some of these Edomites apparently were just standing by not doing anything, and God's holding them accountable for not doing anything, for not helping. Verse 12, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So not only did some of them do nothing to help the children of Israel, but some of them gazed. What that mean? It means basically they stared not just with indifference, but they actually were were like rejoicing gleefully, watching what was happening, watching the destruction. In Psalm 137, it's a psalm that was written probably during or maybe shortly after the Babylonian captivity when it happened in uh And in verse 7 it says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundations. Pride can cause us to rejoice in others' misfortunes. Maybe we think the other, I'm glad they're getting their just desserts, you know. Maybe it's somebody who's actually, they're actually evil. They're actually, you know, yeah, they deserve what they're getting. But pride can cause us to rejoice in others' misfortunes. And God isn't happy with it when we do that. Proverbs 24, verse 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Don't, don't do that. Some of the Edomites, not only did they not do anything, not only did they rejoice in the misfortune of the Israelites, but some of the Edomites even went so far as to use the opportunity or the occasion to take advantage of the children of Israel. Look at verse 13. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Evidently, there were some of them that actually entered the land either before or after the Babylonians came through, and they stole from the children of Israel. They they took advantage of the time when they were down. And still others did the utmost cruel thing. Look at verse 14. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So, I mean, this is the, the ultimate violence or wickedness that you could do not only you're not helping them but actually you're preventing them from escaping now you're actually taking part in causing them to be turned over to the babylonian uh, executioners when it says uh, to those uh, when it says nor should you have delivered up those among those excuse me delivered up those who remained in the day of distress that, that term delivering up it basically means handing them over for execution so that was the ultimate, what they did. They were literally preventing people from escaping the invaders, and they actually were turning people over to the executioners. So this is the reasons that God was, was judging Edom. And the root issue of this sin, in fact of any sin, in whatever form it takes, it boils down to selfish pride. You know, I deserve something you have, uh, and you don't deserve it, and so I'm going to take it from you. 
or, you know, I'm going to hurt you because you wronged me. I've been offended. I, I, I. That's what, that's pride sleep, slipping in there. Well, Esau hated his brother because he perceived that Jacob stole something from him. And Jacob was a conniver. Jacob did trick his brother. But Esau took that and he hated Jacob and he swore to kill him. And it's interesting when you read the story in Genesis 25, you know, they separated. Jacob ran from Esau and for many, many years uh, they didn't see each other. And they grew older, and, and maybe, maybe time sort of healed the wound, some, so to speak. I don't know. But when they eventually met later on, and Jacob still remembered that Esau wanted to kill him, and so he was, he was worried about it. So he kind of was trying to smooth over things with his brother, if you read that story. Well, when they finally did meet, Esau's hatred it had evidently subsided. He no longer had this, i got to kill you, i got to kill you. But you know what? The damage had been done. Why do I say that? Well, evidently, for many, many years, he must have hated his brother and talked about it, and he had this attitude of hatred towards the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, because his children and their children, for generations down, had a burning hatred for Jacob's children. It was a... (laughs) That even extends down into our day with the terrorism that's going on in Israel today. It's this, it's this everlasting hatred. And, and at some point, these generations, you know, these, these generations after, all they know is we hate the Israelites. I, I don't know why, but we're told to hate them. You know, and in, today in schools in Palestine, kids are being indoctrinated to hate Israel. And I bet you some of them don't even know why they hate Israel. But, hey, they're the enemy. You're supposed to hate them. And so evidently this happened. Now, now Esau, obviously, at some point, he just he let it go. Maybe he forgave Jacob. Who knows? But the damage had been done. And, and you know, for parents, it's our attitudes, man. They, they carry. Kids pick up on our attitudes. And we have to be careful because they can pick up on our attitudes and our actions. It has a profound impact on our children. It can either be a, an impact for good, but it can also be for evil if we're not careful. So we have to watch our own hearts. What's the result of God's judgment? Verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Jesus, in Matthew 7, verse 2, says, For with what judgment you judge you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The Bible also says, you know, we reap what we sow. And so what's going to happen? They're going to be judged in the way that they judged the Israelites. Now verse 15 seems to be directed to the children of Israel, or the people of Israel, because they had drank the cup of the Lord's wrath. I mean, that's why they were going into captivity. They had rebelled against the Lord. They, they had deserved punishment. God had, for years, sent prophets and prophets trying to get them to repent, and then they didn't. And so they were getting punished. They were going to go into captivity. They deserved it. But God had not utterly forsaken them. And their punishment was really it was a result of a loving father caring for his children. 
You know, what loving father would not discipline your, their children when they were errant? You, 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 if you love them, you're going to discipline them. And, and this is what God did with the children of Israel. They had drank the cup of God's wrath as his children. But if they had, how much more would the enemies of God drink the cup of his wrath until there is no more to drink? Jeremiah, again, I mentioned earlier that Jeremiah quotes some of Obadiah. And uh, in Jeremiah 49, verse 12, he kind of elaborates on this. He says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. He's talking about the children of Judah. They weren't supposed to, but they did drink of the cup of God's wrath. And then, he's, and then he directs it to the, to the Edomites. Are you the one? Uh, let me read this again. For thus says the Lord, Behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. You know, the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, Apostle Peter kind of touches on this too. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17, he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, if God disciplines you and I, we, we start rebelling and we, 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 we backslide and we don't repent and God deals with us as loving children or as a father that loves us and, and we can experience a form of his wrath, you know, a form of, a form of punishment uh, in, the, in the form of, of discipline. But if God treats you and I who he loves that way, how much more is he going to punish those who completely reject him and turn their back against him? Verse 17, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So the house of Jacob... All his descendants, the Israelites, they would possess the possessions of the Edomites. The house of Jacob would be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. In other words, they would be the fire of God's judgment against the Edomites. When did that happen? Was that, has, that, has that happened? We'll, we'll talk about that later, about the literal fulfillment of this prophecy. The bottom line is the house of Esau would be devoured by the flame of God's judgment. There'd be no survivor of the house of of Esau. They'd be gone. You can't find an Edomite today, by the way. You go look, find out someone's heritage. Are you Armenian? Are you, you know, whatever. You won't find anyone that says, well, I'm an Edomite. (laughs) They don't exist anymore. What about the restoration of Israel? We kind of have to back up and reread, starting with verse 17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. He says, on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. You know, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they would each go into captivity because of their sin and their idolatry. And their punishment would be severe, but God had not utterly forsaken them. He would bring the Babylonian captives back to Israel under the blessings of Cyrus, king of the Medes and the Persians. 
That was prophesied in the book of Daniel. It was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah too. I think or Isaiah, excuse me. So when they came back from their captivity, the, the Babylonian captives, in one sense, there would be holiness. Because when they returned to the land, they no longer had a national problem with Baal worship, which was one of the reasons why they went into captivity in the first place. They no longer had a national issue with Baal worship. But I don't think that was the ultimate fulfillment. God is looking further to their ultimate deliverance in the Messiah. He was prophesying the coming of the Messiah. And when Jesus came into the world, you know, the Jews, by and large, they rejected him. Most of them rejected him as their Messiah. And as a result of that, Jerusalem was once more destroyed, and they were scattered across the face of the earth for 2,000 years. But of course, God had not utterly forsaken them. Now they've been brought back into the land. God's not finished with his people, the Jews. Their ultimate deliverance is yet to be revealed. And you know, as Christians, sometimes we really need to be careful when it comes to Israel. We need to be careful not to be spiritually prideful. You know, that, oh, now we're God's chosen. The Jews, they had their opportunity and they've, they've, they've missed it. And there's people that believe that way. We have to be careful not to be spiritually prideful regarding our status as grafted in believers. Why? Because Paul writes this in Romans 11.25. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's not done with the Jewish people. Obadiah's prophecy goes on to say, the house of Jacob... Obama's not a prophet, by the way. Um, Obadiah's prophecy goes on to say, the house of Jacob shall possess the possessions of the Edomites. And you think about it, the things that the Edomites selfishly clung to and the things that they took pride in and the things that they plundered from Israel, God is not overlooking that. He is going to transfer all that back to the children of Israel. Verse 19, The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. And, and so we're giving all these, these locations in Israel, and Obadiah is prophesying that all that land that once had been taken over or belonged to the enemies of Israel, it's, ultimately it's going to be given back to Israel. And I don't know that we've seen the complete fulfillment in this. Um, I think that we will see that at the time of the millennium. But it's interesting, especially when you look at the formation of the nation of, of Israel, you know, as a nation state in 1948, Three, three, maybe four times, the enemies all around them wanted to wipe them off the face of the, of the earth. You know, they just completely decimate them. And each time, God miraculously delivered the nation of Israel. 
And every time those battles occurred, God gave them more land. It's amazing. They've got more and more and more land every time. God just completely blessing. So we, we even see, have seen a, at least a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. But we will see the ult- ultimate one at the millennium. Verse 21. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. When will the kingdom be the Lord's? Well, at the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ as He reigns from Jerusalem. Who are the saviors that shall come to Mount Zion? That's interesting. That word I thought would be a noun. It's actually a verb. And it means to save or to help or to, to deliver, to defend, and with the idea of being a protective, uh, like the protective duty of a shepherd. And it's, 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 so it's interesting. Well, I think it's referring to the millennium because John wrote this, Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus uh, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ Jesus, uh, and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. So the, these saviors that's being referred to in uh, chapter or verse twenty-one, I, I think it's referring to these. Uh, I think you and I we're going to be reigning, living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And so now we get, we've gone through that, that outline, basically. But now we get to, I, I like what Paul Harvey has to say, and now for the rest of the story. <laughs> it's interesting. When you look in the Bible at the prophecies against different nations, there are more Bible passages pronouncing judgment on the Edomites than any other nation. Overwhelmingly more. Why is that? What happened to the Edomites? I, I said, you know, we'll talk about the literal fulfillment of what happened as far as them being destroyed. And another thing, why does God say, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated? That's a, that's a very difficult verse to, to understand. Well, we're going to take a look at all of that, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, and we're also going to look at some obvious and not some and not and some not so obvious Edomites that are brought up in the Bible and their significance uh, with regard to the children of Israel. But ultimately, there's a significance for you and I. And so there is a lot more to the rest of this story than just what we studied this morning. It's such a small book, but there's so many applications uh, or implications, and there's one major application but you know what we're going to save it for next week this is a two-part study so i we, otherwise we'd be here till for another good hour or so you guys are like okay you get you ready okay let's do it no just kidding um so i encourage you next week come back for and i've even titled the message obadiah the rest of the story <laughs> so why don't you stand up let's go lord in prayer <coughs> heavenly father thank you for your word this morning and uh Lord, just the reminder about how you hate pride. And Lord God, when we look back at uh, 
the very first sin that was ever committed was committed by Lucifer. And he sinned because of pride. And ever since then, pride has been uh, the root issue behind all of our sin. And so, Lord, I just this is such an important chapter talking about the pride of the Edomites. Father, I know that we ourselves struggle with pride in different forms, and it manifests itself in different ways. Father, this morning I pray, Lord, that Lord, it, we might just have a wake-up call, that we might examine our own hearts in relation to pride. And Father, that we might humble ourselves. We just thank you for those reminders, Lord. We thank you that you are so, such a patient God with each one of us, and that you love us and you forgive us, and you allow us to be called your children, even though we still struggle with some of these areas. So we thank you for your great love and kindness to us. This morning, Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people. I pray that as they celebrate Thanksgiving, Lord, that uh, that would be one more thing that they would just reflect on um, as far as what they're thankful for. And I'm thankful for each person here, Lord God, and I pray your blessing upon them this coming week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.